is good for us to pray for the uh, immigration crisis, uh, first of all, because they're fellow human beings, and so we should pray for them regardless, but there are many Christians that are involved in this massive, massive exodus out of Syria and uh, parts of Iraq. Uh, IMB personnel uh, are all over the place on the ground working and trying to assist and help, uh, just care for the people as they're coming through and trying to make their way to, they really don't know where. Uh, they just know where they have been, they can't stay. And uh, so we, sh- we should pray, and um, I'm hoping our own government will uh, open its borders and let folks in. Uh, at this point in time, uh, America has not uh, agreed to assimilate even a half a percent uh, of the uh, immigrants, and then you have a country like Germany that's going to assimilate more than 800,000 and um, some people might say, well, it's not our problem. Well, yes, it is. It absolutely is. Uh, when people are hurting and we can do something about it, we should. And uh, that's not really all that complicated. Revelation chapter 17 is our text this evening. It's been well said that the uh, book of Revelation is actually a tale of two cities. Uh, one is described for us in chapter 17 and 18. It is called Babylon. And the other is described in Revelation 21 and 22, and it is called the New Jerusalem. And the two could not stand in more stark uh, contrast. Now, this is a tough, tough chapter. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the 18 verses, and I'm going to make some comments along the way, kind of like a, a running commentary. Then we'll go back and work our way through it again. Uh, because if we go through it in that way kind of twice, uh, we might be able to grab a hold of what's going on because, again, it is a very, very complicated uh, passage of Scripture. It's not the kind of passage you would preach on if you were just preaching willy-nilly somewhere. You know, if someone called me and said, hey, come preach at our church and you pick the text, I would not pick Revelation 17. Uh, it's the kind that really is well-suited for what we're doing here on Wednesday nights in our Bible study. So, look at verse 1 with me of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, so there's a connection between the final judgments of chapter 16 with what we're going to see in chapter 17 and also in chapter 18. It's almost as if God is telling us, let me show you the earthly mechanism that uh, caused me to pour out my judgments in terms of the Great Tribulation. And we're going to see that this mechanism is described as a prostitute or as a great whore, and it is given the name Babylon the Great. So, one of the seven angels that had poured out the judgment of chapter 16 is told to come. And I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Sometimes you hear the phrase, the whore of Babylon. Well, this is where it comes from, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, but particularly 17. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And the chart that I have given you tonight kind of has a ledger on the back side which helps you see some of the key phrases. And later we learn in verse 15 that the waters upon which the great prostitute sits is the nations. Uh, It is the peoples and nations of the world. So she has worldwide uh, influence uh, in terms of her activity. Uh, She has uh, committed uh, with the kings of the earth sexual immorality, which in the context clearly has the idea of spiritual immorality, spiritual adultery. And she has done so with the wine of whose, and, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on the earth, that reoccurring phrase we've seen repeatedly throughout Revelation, which speaks of people on the earth who are not related to the Lamb, who have not been bought or purchased by the Lamb. So unbelievers who live according to the principles of this great prostitute, they become drunk with her wine. They become drunk with her sexual immorality. So, he carried me away. This is the third time, by the way, in Revelation that John is carried away in the Spirit. He carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman that was sitting on a scarlet beast. And very clearly, the scarlet beast is the beast of Revelation 13. It is the Antichrist. 
Uh, this beast was full of blasphemous names, and he had seven heads, which minimally speak of great uh, power and authority, and also ten horns, which emphasize great power and authority. I guess I could say it this way, the seven heads address authority, and the ten horns address power. Uh, this woman, this great prostitute, was arrayed in purple and scarlet, very wealthy, very rich, uh, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, but she was also holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality, her spiritual adultery. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. And by the way, in the ancient uh, world, uh, prostitutes often wore a headband uh, around their head that would in some way identify them. So this is picking up on the imagery that would have been very prevalent in the first century. So once more, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. So she has spawned many children and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? Why are you amazed at what you see? Let me tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And I'll make a comment later. The fact that uh, this prostitute is riding the beast could indicate that for a period of time, she has some control or influence over the beast. That the beast is carrying her clearly indicates that he is supporting her, just like a rider uh, on a horse is controlling the horse, but is also being supported by the horse. You may have this kind of idea here. Then it gets really complex here at verse 8. The beast that you saw was, uh, it was in existence, uh, is not, it goes out for a period, and it is about to rise from, and of course, this is emphasized here both in verse 8 and again in verse 11, its ultimate origin is the abyss, the bottomless pit, and you can count on this, it is going to be destroyed. It is going to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, that is, those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they will also marvel to see the beast because it was is not, and is to come, which is clearly, by the way, a parity uh, on the Lord Jesus who was, who is, and who is to come. There's a play here, which we've already seen in chapter 13, that you have the beast uh, counterfeiting the resurrection, the death and resurrection of our Lord. That's probably what's also being emphasized here as well. Verse 9 is an understatement. This calls for a mind with wisdom. You think, well, here's our best shot. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Almost all commentators are of one mind that this is a reference to Rome. Rome, of course, was the seat of world power in the first century. But they're more than that. Not only are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, they are also seven kings or seven kingdoms, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he will remain for a little while. Now, Bible commentators here are not of one mind. They are all over the map. But if you look at the uh, notes that I gave you uh, this evening, and you flip it over, you'll see in the left-hand column the phrase, seven heads. And here's what I think they mean, though again, I would not spill my blood on this. I'm in agreement, though, with people like uh, John MacArthur, uh, David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, very well-known, faithful Bible expositors. Seven world empires have stood in opposition to God and His people. Five were in John's past. Remember, John's one writing this, so it has to have, in terms of its time reference, John's day. What were the five great empires in Israel's history? Well, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. That fits. One that existed in John's day, which of course would have been Rome, and one that will arise in the future, which I believe is a reference to the coming kingdom 
of the Antichrist. And so I think that is what John is getting at when he says there, there are five kings, uh, five who have fallen, one who is, the other is yet to come, and when he does, he will remain only a little while. As for the beast, here's the third time that we've had this stated, that was and is not, well, it's an eighth. But it does belong to the seven, and it goes to destruction, which I think he is saying that the beast, who is the seventh, has a kingdom just like the previous six, but he will expand that kingdom to be a different kind of kingdom from any kingdom the world has ever seen because it will be a universal, worldwide kingdom that he will have as the eighth. Furthermore, that he comes out of the seven indicates he has all of the power, all of the sophistication, all of the authority that you saw in this previous uh, seven or previous six, seven. And so his, his authority, his power is massive and unlike anything the world has ever known. I think that's what he is getting at. But again, don't be discouraged because the end of verse 11, he's going to be destroyed. He's going to destruction. The, the, the tale of two cities, Babylon will not last. The new Jerusalem will last forever and ever and ever. It really doesn't matter which city you are a citizen of. Verse 12. What about these ten horns uh, that you saw? Well, they are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings, but it will be very short. Uh, it only be for one hour, which I think here is speaking symbolically. And they will have this very short authority together with the beast. Verse 13, these are of one mind then, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. That's why he has this worldwide kingdom, because everyone gives them, everyone gives him their allegiance, and therefore he has their authority as well. Verse 14 is almost like a quick interjection in case you're getting discouraged. They will make war on the Lamb, bad call. And the Lamb will conquer them. Why? Because as Revelation 19:16 also says, He is the Lord of lords and He is the King of kings and those with Him, that's you and me, we are called, we are chosen, and we are faithful. Verse 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast are going to eventually hate the prostitute. They're going to hate Babylon. They will make her desolate and naked. In fact, they will devour her flesh and they will burn her with fire. Why will they do this? Because God is sovereign. Verse 17, He has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until... The words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw, the prostitute, the whore, that great city is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. I think historically they would have understood that to be Rome. I think it is Rome, but it is also more than Rome. And I'll address that when we walk through the text in just a moment. So, there's kind of a running commentary that kind of lays the playing field. Let's go back and unwrap the details. And note with me, first of all, in our study tonight, the world, it is seductive and it will attract you. As we saw a moment ago, Revelation 17 and 18 is a natural extension of the bold judgments of chapter 16. And John is told by one of the angels to come, one of the angels who had the seven bowls. And why is he to come? That he might see the judgment of the great prostitute, the great whore, who is, as we saw, is seated on many waters. And that again indicates her worldwide influence and her worldwide impact. Uh, the harlot is said to lead the kings. Uh, the rulers of the world into what is called in the text sexual immorality. But I do think it is a, a figure indicating spiritual adultery. And in particular, if there is a word that needs to be in all of our minds at this point, it is the word idolatry. Many times in the Bible, sexual immorality is used as an image for idolatry because you have given your love and your allegiance to a different God. You worship the gods of this world. You worship 
money. You worship stuff. You worship power. You worship prestige. You worship all the things that this world places as a value, and therefore you are in essence guilty of adultery. Adultery against the one true and living God. Remember what James said in James 4.14? You adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You make yourself a friend of the world and you make yourself God's enemy. Well, Revelation 17 is just expanding out and giving us some details of that very simple, concise statement by the Apostle John. Not only does she seduce, though, the leaders of the world, but the text says in verse 2, she also seduces the dwellers of the earth. They are drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. So not only does she appeal to the uh, aristocracy, she also appeals and seduces the common person as well. Lust for power, lust for sex, lust for material stuff, pleasure, all of this intoxicates the earth dwellers intoxicates the people under the sun on the earth. In fact, as one man said, no one under the sun has escaped her enticing allurements. The prostitute has captivated their hearts and she has taken over their lives. And of course, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 provides insight as well where John wrote there, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is characteristic of worldliness, or if you like, characteristic of Babylonianism, and they have indeed become our gods. In my notes I've written, don't be offended, the American dream has become ultimate. And in America, we've all become Babylonians. Wait till we get to chapter 18 next week when you see how people lament over the loss of all of their wealth and all of their stuff and all the things that they counted so dear in this world and in this life. Well, verse 3, John is again carried away in the Spirit. This is the third time I mentioned it a moment ago. The first time is in chapter 1, verse 10. second time is in chapter 4, verse 2. The third time is here in chapter 17, verse 3. And the fourth time is in Revelation 21 and verse 10. It's a vision. So he's carried out into a wilderness place so he can see what is going to happen. And here's what he sees. He sees a great prostitute sitting upon a scarlet beast, a purple beast. And it is, first of all, full of blasphemous names. So we know that this beast stands in stark opposition to the one true God. He is nothing but evil and wicked personified. And as we read earlier, he has seven heads and he has ten horns. Again, if you're a note taker, you ought to write Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 through 10 because that's where we receive the first and most full description in Revelation of the beast, the person that we also know as the Antichrist. Here, though, this woman uh, is beautifully and seductively dressed. It says she's in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. So she's very attractive like a prostitute, very enticing like a prostitute. Uh, she is indeed uh, a quite beautiful adulteress. And by the way, she sounds like the girl that's described in Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 6 and Proverbs chapter 7. Go read how Solomon describes the woman of the night in those three chapters and she sounds a whole lot like this spiritual adulteress in Revelation chapter 17. So she's beautiful. She's attractive, but she bites and she brings death. In fact, in her hand she holds a golden bowl full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality, verse 4. Uh, Alan Johnson says, The golden cup filled with wine alludes to Jeremiah's description of Babylon's worldwide influence in idolatry in Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 7, and her cup is just not containing abominable things. Her cup is filled to the brim with abominable things. And so she has basically taken a senseless humanity and cast us into a drunken stupor. We don't see things as they really are. Uh, we need to remind ourselves, you know, even in our sinful state, we still think because we are imagers of God, but we think wrongly. We think incorrectly. We don't see things in our fallen state as they really are, and this is the world. 
It never sees things accurately. It never sees things truly. It never sees the fact that truth and beauty and goodness are ultimately found in a God who transcends all things, not in stuff down here, not in the things of this life. Well, look at verse 5. The identity of the harlot is revealed. Like the Roman prostitutes of the day, she has a headband that is a mystery about to be revealed. And what is that mystery? She is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, I make a very important uh, interpreted decision here. I don't think that the text is talking about the literal city of Babylon. Now, that was a very popular opinion about uh, when was Desert Storm? What year? 90 what? Okay. So, uh, a guy named uh, Dyer, Charlie Dyer, was a professor at one time at Dallas Seminary. Then he went to Moody Bible, came out with a little paperback on Babylon, and he sold like 500,000 copies and made a mother load of Not a lot. I mean, he probably got a, a dollar per book. So, he made half a million dollars, boom, just like that. By the way, today, you can get that book for free. Don't, don't pay for anything for it because it's not really worth the paper that it was printed on because none of that came to fruition. And none of that, I think, was even the right understanding. Babylon, the city Babylon, has been a nothing city for centuries and centuries. And I have no reason to think that somehow that is going to be revived at the end time. Babylon stands throughout Scripture for that which is in opposition to God. Again, it stands in opposition to the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and so it represents all that is earthly, all that is immoral, all that is impure. In essence, Babylon in the first century was Rome. Babylon in the first century was Rome. Today, Babylon is everywhere. Babylon is in Beijing, and Babylon is in London, and Babylon is in New York, where again the value systems of this world drive and dictate everything. So I believe very clearly in the first century context, those reading the book of Revelation would have immediately made a connection, not with the city of Babylon, but they would have made a connection with Rome. But as I said, yes, it's Rome, but it's more than Rome. This prostitute, this great system of godliness, or godlessness, excuse me, that leads people away from the worship of the one true and living God. It has been with us throughout history, and it will be with us until history comes to its end. Again, one man said it like this, Seduced by the sirens and idols of the day, we run madly down a path of spiritual and eternal suicide. And listen to what um, Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32 and 33. It is true of a literal prostitute. It's also true of this spiritual prostitute. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He, he, he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace. It will not be wiped away. So the first thing we see is the world is seductive. It will attract you. Secondly, the world is murderous. It takes innocent life. Look at what we see there in verse 6. I saw the woman, the prostitute, Babylon, drunk. Drunk with the blood of the saints. She's drank a lot of blood. Drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Because Babylonianism is driven by self-interest, it is more than willing to sacrifice others to promote its own benefits and to promote its own prosperity. I'm listening to this immigration thing about uh, the Syrians and the Iraqis and the others there in the Middle East, and the excuse that is thrown up by some is that, well, there's a security issue here, and we just don't want to run the risk of compromising our security. Amazingly, that's the primary argument of Saudi Arabia, who has taken in no immigrants to this point but you would think naturally they would. Very wealthy country, got lots of space. These are fellow Muslims in many cases. They haven't taken in a single one. You say, do you think it's really security? No. I think it's, again, the almighty dollar or whatever they use for their currency in Saudi Arabia. And so they're more than willing to sacrifice others to maintain their own prosperity and to maintain their own benefits. And the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, we see this around the globe. 
This is what drives the abortion industry. This is what drives genocide. This is what drives infanticide. This is what motivates euthanasia. Increasingly, we discount life at the beginning and now at the end. And we start eating away, eating away, eating away. And we realize that the, the marginally... Um, uh, the marginalized that, 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 that can't really contribute economically and they really can't contribute socially really do not have a quality of life worth maintaining. You see, we get seduced and we forget that we should all operate from a sanctity of life ethic and not a quality of life ethic. All life is valuable in God's eyes because all persons bear His image. A, a Down syndrome child is no less an imager of God than you or me. And yet we discount their value, and then when it comes to the aged, if they uh, can no longer contribute, if they can no longer produce, well, they ought to uh, have the integrity to quietly let us put them away so that they will no longer be a drain on our society. That's Babylonianism, pure and simple. So what does verse 6 say? It reveals that the great prostitute has set her sights throughout history on the blood of people, but in particular, she has set her sights throughout history on the blood of God's people and the followers of Jesus. She is drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You know, in the New Testament, the seeds of the martyrs is already there. Think about it. John the Baptist, martyred. Stephen, martyred. James, Martyred, And even in Revelation, in chapter 2 and verse 13, we saw a man by the name of Antipas martyred simply because he was a follower of Jesus. Then built on that for the last 21 centuries. And it is true. More martyrs have come from Christianity than all the other world religions combined. I want to be fair. There are martyrs in Hinduism and there are martyrs in Buddhism and there are martyrs in Islam and Judaism. But you put all them together and they pale in comparison to the blood of the martyrs of those who have followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, the more blood this world system drinks, the more blood it wants. And in fact, the last century, the 20th century, was overwhelmingly the bloodiest century in history when it comes to the blood of Christian martyrs. I strongly suspect the 21st century will exceed that. Because as you look at the world today, it is not becoming more... um, uh, friendly toward Christianity. If anything, hostility is increasing at a very rapid, rapid rate. That's why Robert Mount says, although the Neronian massacre after the great fire of A.D. 64 may have been in the back of John's mind, the drunken prostitute pictures the final days of persecution at the end of the age. And we talked about this earlier. I I told you that I believe that the last seven years of history will be, without any question, the greatest days of revival the world has ever known. It will also be the greatest days of tragedy and judgment the world has ever known. And I also am absolutely convinced it will be the greatest days of martyrdom the world has ever known as well. You will follow the beast and receive his mark and you'll be safe. You will reject his mark and you will not be able even to buy or sell. And in most cases you will lose your life. And so as we move toward the end of history, we should not anticipate that things will get better. We should indeed expect that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and that the blood of martyrs, as one man said, will flow like a river, even a flood. Number three, this world is resilient. It keeps coming back. Verses 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. John is amazed by this because he continues, well, I, I was marveling. I, I, was, I, I was stunned. And the angel said to me, well, why do you marvel? Why, why, why does this amaze you? Let me tell you the mystery of the woman and also of the beast. The angel promises that he will explain to him things concerning the woman, Babylon, and the beast, Antichrist. All right, so keep that distinctively in your mind. The woman, the the prostitute, is Babylonianism. 
And she is right now in a, an allegiance, a relationship with the beast who is the Antichrist. All right? Verse 8 says uh, that this particular individual, the beast that you saw, was, is not, and is about to rise from, there's a resurrection out of the bottomless pit, the abyss, but number four, he will go to destruction. As I mentioned a moment ago, I think this is a parody on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus as we have seen previously in the book of Revelation. And if you go back to chapter 13, verse 3 and verse 14, you see this same description of the beast there. So what we have here is that this Antichrist, this beast, has this ability to show up, go away, and come back. Show up, go away, and come back. Show up, go away, and come back. Now you say, well, wait, that's just going to be true at the end of the age. No. Remember in John's letter, he said that many antichrists, small a, s at the end of the word, has already gone out, but there is an antichrist who is coming. So the fact of the matter is, the spirit of the antichrist, if you like, the spirit of the beast, has been with us for 2,000 years. And you can look at history and see again and again and again antichrist-like governments and antichrist-like personalities who have come on the scene and who in a real sense are anticipatory of the big Antichrist who is going to show up at the end of the age. Now, their origin is the same every time. It's the pit of hell. It is the abyss. And yes, they show up, but then they die. But amazingly, they come back again only to be destroyed. And then again, they come back and they do their work and they die and then they come back again. And so we see this repeated over and over and over. You've seen the beast, the Antichrist, through Egypt. You've seen the beast, the Antichrist, through Babylon. You've seen the beast, the Antichrist, through Medo-Persia, through Greece, through Rome. But let's move ahead. The Ottomans, the Soviet Union, communist China, and now, yes, the Western world all give evidence of being Babylonians driven and consumed and controlled by the value systems of this world. But it's not just a world system. They're individuals. Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, in the uh, period of time before Jesus, was an Antichrist-type figure. Nero was an Antichrist-type figure. Domitian was an Antichrist-type figure. And so was Genghis Khan and Shaka Zulu and Mussolini and Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and Idi Amin and Kim Il-sung and Saddam Hussein. All of these individuals who have brought such horror to the world were Antichrist. Small a, S at the end of the word, anticipating the big one, who is the last one who we are now reading about in Revelation chapter 17. And I want to be fair, all these kingdoms were not equally evil and bad, but they were all equally, they were all equally sinful. And they all loved the prostitute more than they loved God. And unless, again, we think we're off the hook, verse 3 says, the dwellers of the earth, they were in love with this prostitute too, regular Ordinary people drunk with the wine of her seduction generation after generation after generation after generation give their allegiance to Babylon and give their allegiance to the beast, the Antichrist. John informs us that the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see not just the prostitute, but they will marvel to see the beast because it was, it is not, and it is to come. And so the beast and the things of this world, they sparkle in our eyes, and the next thing we know, they've got a hold of our heart. And again, I like the warning of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17, where the Bible says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, he is the one who will abide forever. Babylonianism will not last and the beast is eventually going to be beaten. Number four, the world is organized, and it has a plan. The world, Babylonianism, is organized, and 
it has a plan. You see, there is a divine uh, rhyme and reason to the ebb and flow of history. Ultimately, it is because history is His story. History is the story of Messiah. But within the unfolding drama of Messiah is this counterfeit kingdom that's running alongside of it every step of the way, which is why verse 9 says, this that you're hearing and reading and, and seeing calls for a mind with wisdom, which again, as I said earlier, that is a giant understatement. So here we go. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. That's the easy one. Clearly a reference to Rome in the first century. You say, why? Because Rome is the city built on seven hills or seven mountains. And so virtually every commentator, and I only have about 45 commentaries on Revelation, and I'm not exaggerating. I've been collecting them for a long time. Going through them, it's almost unanimous. They all agree the seven hills represent Rome. But then he goes on and says there's something more than that. Verse 10, there are also seven kings five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when it does, it will remain only a little while. Now, a lot of commentators and a lot of students of Scripture want to identify the seven kings with seven emperors that were in the context of John's day, seven emperors that had come up culminating in Domitian. The problem is none of them can make it work. They, uh, most guys will say, I tried, it won't work. So that just doesn't fit, that it was seven historical emperors there about the time of John, prior to John, leading up to John. The reason I think it's seven secular kingdoms is because I think Revelation is doing very much what Daniel does. If you go read the book of Daniel, and in particular chapter 2 and chapter 7, where you first of all got the great uh, statue that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar saw, uh, and then you've got the beast that Daniel sees in chapter 7, they clearly are depicting four kingdoms. And they were depicting the um, Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks. So I think if you were to step back again and ask the question, who are... What are the great kingdoms in Israel's history? Well, five have passed off the scene. Look at the back of your chart again. Egypt, Assyria, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. They're gone. They have vanished into the dustbin of history, and they have not made a comeback, all right? The one who is in John's day obviously would be Rome. That's, that's easy as well. Therefore, I think we're on really good grounds to say that the other one that has not come yet is the future kingdom of the Antichrist. Furthermore, I believe because of his relationship to these others, he will draw from the others their characteristics, uh, in particular the things that accentuate their power and their authority. And the fact that John uses the number seven should also indicate to us the idea of perfection uh, in power and the idea of completeness in authority. So this kingdom under the Antichrist will far exceed any kingdom this world, notice my phrase there, this world has ever seen or will ever see. And because it is so awesome, people will worship Him. People will even claim that He's the God. And they will give their full allegiance to him only to see a very short-lived kingdom and only to be very, very disappointed. What does the text say? This kingdom will remain only a little while. So yes, he will have a worldwide kingdom, but his worldwide kingdom will be very, very short-lived. Number five, this world is power, but its time is short. This world is powerful, but its time is short. Verses 11 through 13, extend the argument of verses 9 and 10. So look at it. As for the beast, verse 11, that was and is not, well, um, it's an eighth. But it belongs to the seven, and again, like we saw back up in verse 8, it goes to destruction. Now here we go. The beast is said to belong to the seven kings, particularly, I think, the seventh. But he also is an eighth but he is going into destruction. So his kingdom is not going to last. He is going to make promises, but he cannot deliver. Now, this is purely Danny Aiken's speculative opinion. 
I think he becomes the eighth at the midpoint of the tribulation. In other words, I think the Antichrist comes on the scene at the end of time. I think he is building his authority and building his kingdom, in essence, in a revived Roman Empire. Uh, if you like, a Mediterranean European confederacy of some sort. At the midpoint, he is going to receive what appears to be a fatal wound. Go back to chapter 13. Miraculously, amazingly, he survives. And the whole world begins to wonder and be amazed at who is like the beast. No one is like the beast. And at that point, Revelation 13, which matches up really well with Revelation 17, says the whole world begins to worship him and the whole world comes under his authority. And it's when the whole world comes under his authority that I believe he becomes this eighth and final kingdom. John MacArthur is in agreement and he says it like this, quote, The Antichrist kingdom is said to be both the seventh and the eighth kingdoms because of his supposed demise and resurrection. He is the seventh before and the eighth after his resurrection. So MacArthur would, in essence, say the same thing, that at the midpoint when he appears to receive a fatal wound but is miraculously brought back, that is when this eighth final king comes into um, reality. But again, this is not where we spill blood because really, really smart guys will see this particular uh, understanding and this particular phrase differently. Well, now let's go to verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw, they're ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings, but again, only for one hour, and their authority does come in their relationship with the beast. Now, those of you that love prophecy may remember that uh, at one time it was very, 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 very popular to say that these two ten kings uh, constituted the uh, European uh, common market. Problem is, there are now a lot more than ten nations in that European common market. Now, some say, yeah, that's okay because the ten most important ones will constitute this partnership with the beast. I don't think you have to go anywhere specifically. First of all, if, if Christ doesn't come back for another thousand years, I don't think we'll have to worry about any of these kind of things. What we do know is as we move toward the end of history, there will be ten powerful political realities of some sort, of some magnitude, that will join themselves with him. I personally, to be honest with you, don't think you should um, restrict it geographically because he's going to have worldwide domination. So I'd be more likely to think that these ten kings that give him their authority are, are intercontinental and, and they come from all over the various parts of the world. Now, I'm always asked this question when we talk about prophecy. Uh, Danny, uh, is America mentioned in the Bible? Well, yeah, it is. Specifically, I didn't say that, but it's right here. It will be a part of these ten kingdoms. I'm absolutely convinced. You say you're kidding me. I'm not kidding you. You think that America is going to be standing out there somehow by itself, still giving its full allegiance to the Lamb? Heck, we don't give the Lamb our full allegiance today. What makes you think we would do it then? No, we're here among the kings that are going to give their loyalty and their allegiance completely and totally to this beast, this Antichrist. But again, very foolish because it will be for a very, very short period. It's described here as only for one hour. But verse 13, they are of one mind. They come together in unanimity, and they hand over their power, and they hand over their authority to the beast, because it seems like for the first time in all of world history, a guy has showed up who can bring peace to the Middle East and bring peace and harmony among all peoples, and therefore everyone gladly gives their loyalty and their allegiance to him. But again, it will not last. Look at what we see, number six. This world is foolish because it opposes the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Verse 14 makes it clear that this world, and in particular the prostitute, uh, and the beast, they chose the wrong opponent. They chose the wrong adversary. It's almost like a quick interjection, as one scholar said in verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb. Who will? The beast, the ten kings, 
The Babylonian system will make war upon the Lamb. Bad call. The Lamb will conquer them. And for one very simple reason, He is the Lord of lords and He is the King of kings. And those with Him, those who come with Him when He comes again, we're anticipating now the second coming of chapter 19. They are called, they are chosen, and they are faithful. It's very interesting. The title Lord of Lords and King of Kings or King of Kings and Lord of Lords is found both in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17. It's found in Psalm 136 verses 2 and 3. It's very clearly in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47. But I thought you'd find this interesting. There's an intertestamental book called First Enoch. It's not in our Bible, but there's an intertestamental book, a Jewish book, a Hebrew writing called First Enoch. And in First Enoch chapter 9 and verse 4, our great God is called Lord of Lords, God of Gods, King of Kings, and God of the Ages, which is really pretty awesome. And it is simply joining with Scripture to affirm that there is no God like our God, and the world has played the fool in opposing and standing against Him. That leads us to our seventh and final observation this evening. The world is self-destructive. It will not last. If I could summarize for you what these verses are saying, they are telling us that the world is going to kill the world. Or to say it may be better, evil will attack evil. Look at what it says there in verse 15. The angel said to me, Well, the waters that you saw where the prostitute, the whore, is seated, they are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So she has universal influence uh, in terms of her sexual immorality. And the ten horns that you saw, verse 16, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. What does a man do when he is finished with a prostitute? Does he take her home to mama? No. Does he really whine and dine her like in the movie Pretty Woman? No. Interesting movie. Kind of a sweet movie. But it's a myth. That's not what a man does with a whore or prostitute. When he's through with her, he gets rid of her. He discards her. Well, when the beast... And his kings are through with the whore. They get rid of her. Verse 16, they will hate her. And what will they do to her? They will make her desolate. And they will make her naked. And they will devour her flesh. And they will burn her with fire. And why do they do this? Because God has put it into their hearts. God raised up the prostitute. And God will take down the prostitute. God raises up the beast and he'll take down the beast. But he uses evil to crush evil here. He uses the beast and his followers to destroy this Babylonian system. And next week when we get to chapter 18, we will read what is in essence a funeral song for a prostitute. In fact, in my Bible, I've got the phrase, funeral song for a prostitute, Revelation 18. And they will lament over the fact that Babylon, this wonderful, magnificent prostitute has gone and they miss her and they wish she would come back because she had so much stuff that they were in love with and they grieve over their loss. But God put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose. Again, they are of one mind, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And just in case you're not sure, He tells us the woman... That you saw, well, she is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. In the historical context, people would have thought it was Rome. But as I said earlier, yes, it's Rome, but it's more than Rome. It's today Beijing, and it's today London, and it's today Washington and New York, and all of these economic, religious, social, cultural systems that stand in opposition to what God values and stands in opposition to what God says is important. Let me close with this great statement from C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. And in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says this about you and me and himself. Quote, We are half-hearted creatures 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. And he's right. We're too easily pleased. And following out his analogy, Babylon offers mud pies in the slum. That's what it offers. But the new Jerusalem, ruled by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, offers, following his analogy, a glorious holiday at a crystal sea that will last forever and ever. So I guess the warning of Babylonianism is simply this. Don't be too easily pleased and don't be seduced by a worldly system that ultimately cannot deliver and certainly is not going to last forever. Let's pray together. Father, uh, these are difficult verses, and uh, but they're also convicting verses because if we read through um, and plow through uh, the apocalyptic imagery, what we realize is, again, John has described for us the system of this world that someday will be under the full dictates and sway of a beast, the Antichrist. And it is absolutely appropriate to describe this world as a prostitute, as a whore. Very attractive, very alluring, but she does not deliver what she promises. She promises life, but she gives death. She promises satisfaction and fulfillment, but she leaves us completely and totally unsatisfied and unfilled. Our Lord Jesus said it so well. What does it profit a man? If he gained the whole world, if he gained all of Babylon and yet lose his soul. He gains nothing. He's played the fool. So, Lord, as C.S. Lewis admonishes us, let us not be too easily pleased, but help us, Lord, to seek that city which is above, that city which is eternal and indeed will last forever. Lord, we don't want to be citizens of Babylon. We want to be citizens of the new Jerusalem. Put that in our hearts. And may we live accordingly. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 18 next week. And thank God we'll be through with Babylon and we'll be moving toward the second coming of Jesus in chapter 19. Thanks, brothers and sisters.